The very idea of running a startup has taken on so much glamour and hype. But what's it really like? Is it more about grit, resilience, even luck? What about those make or break moments where things can either come together or go totally off the rails? That's where things get interesting, and those are the stories we'll explore. From the founder's perspective, unfiltered and honest. I'm Jenny Fielding, and I'm the Managing Director of Techstars New York City. I'm also an investor, founder, and an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship. And this is Founder Rising. Welcome, everyone. We're super excited to have Ken, the founder of Republic, here with us today. Ken is a first-time founder, but I feel like he's been doing this for quite a long time. So it almost feels like he's a multi-time founder, but really interesting background and a shift in careers. Um, So I'd love to start, how do you go from general counsel and a career in law to running a startup? Jenny, first of all, thank you for having me. It's so lovely to be here. And thanks for the kind uh, introduction. I think that a uh, entrepreneurial journey is just something that when you believe in something strongly enough to give up pretty much everything else, then that's the right moment to do it. Forcing yourself into founding a company is not a journey that I would take or would advise other people to take because that commitment mentally got to be there. And I found that commitment toward the tail end of my time at AngelList and made a decision to leave the company and... Next thing I know, uh, here in New York, doing Republic. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible journey. When you think about the confluence of what was going on in the space around the regulations changing, around the New York tech ecosystem coming together, what made you decide that this was a great place to run this type of company? Republic, at the end of the day, is an investment platform that is seeking to build something new in investment, in investing in venture. And I was based at AngelList in Silicon Valley. So if you can go out and build a new model, I figure that where to be but be in the seat of capital of the world, but not where the tech ecosystem has always been. And I lived in New York in uh, asset management, uh, doing asset management for a number of years before going to Silicon Valley. So in a way, it was like coming home and uh, just seeing so much potential in the tech ecosystem here. And I got to say, the past three or four or five years, it has grown so much, almost like viscerally. And of course, tech stars and you have always been kind of like the seed, the anchor of that. If you think about, you know, those early years of founding Republic and getting the team together, inspiring people around a vision that maybe you had, but the world didn't have yet, um, (laughs) there was a lot of friction and and challenges. So talk us through kind of some early examples of you having to kind of rally your employees and, you know, get people on board with your vision. We have a pretty interesting background in that we have an institutional co-founder that is AngelList. At the beginning, Naval and AngelList very much believed in the potential of everyday people, millions and millions of people investing 5 or $10 into tech startups, believe in the possibility of it. But truth be told, a year in, they kind of lost that belief when the crypto boom And on my end, the more people kind of questioned our business model getting traction, the more I believed or wanted it to prove to play itself out. 
I've been very lucky to have a team and a set of co-founders that share that commitment. And I gotta say, one thing that's very easy about Republic or working for or at Republic is that the work that we do every day, whether or not it makes economic sense at the beginning is a different story, but that the work does in fact help founders who often didn't have any other source of capital to raise at the beginning $50,000, $25,000. Today on average, we do over $600 per, per campaign. But two, three years ago, that amount of money made such a difference for them. So it was very gratifying. And I think doing work that day in and day out has a more direct impact on the people around us definitely helps the journey to be easier. Especially in the early years, you were building this kind of incredible infrastructure. You're obviously dealing with everything from regulations, just, you know, a lot of challenges there. But it wasn't an immediate success, right? So at the beginning... It was hard to get people on the platform. It was hard for people not to understand what was different than Indiegogo and what was this equity crowdfunding. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about those beginning days of the product. Investment crowdfunding, and particularly the Republic model, is an exceedingly difficult model to do. In fact, if I were an investor and someone came to me pitching the model, a bunch of red flags would come up because it is a two-sided marketplace heavily regulated. Most people, I mean 99.9% of the U.S. population, the wealthiest country in the world, have never made a private investment. Even if you're a doctor or an investment banker, you've done public stock, but you don't know what it means to invest privately. So you got to convince the public and your investor base is vast, but you expect them to deploy a very small amount of money into something that doesn't pay off for years to come. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> However, uh, combining media, regulatory know-how, and building a product and weaving a message, having a content strategy that can relate to people in an era where everyone's attention is about nine seconds or less, all of that took a little bit of time to add and to build. To give you an example, only since earlier this year, we now have true internal marketing expertise in terms of performance marketing and getting the messages out. At the beginning, it was with what we knew best, which is legal pragmatism, by background as a lawyer, and the background in venture, and with advisors, formal and informal, including yourself, to kind of like share the message with the founders community and growing one step at a time. But many, many points during that journey, it didn't quite make sense economically. And we kept thinking that, hey, why don't we try or add on another piece and hopefully that, that would make it easier for founders and more economically sensible for us. So it's been a validation process every step of the way in the past three and a half years. So many stakeholders to appease, huh? Right. And plus a changing landscape around the actual product is, is pretty hard. But sitting here right now, three and a half years out, I have never say never, but virtually no doubt that Republic's business model will work. And I have absolutely no doubt that in our lifetime, people will be investing small amounts in private businesses, textile portfolio companies, restaurants, even nonprofit in exchange for revenue in a way that they buy products on Amazon. Small 
amount easily, quickly, and feel engaged in the ecosystem. One of the things that's very notable about Republic is the team that you've built. I've interacted with probably half the people on your team over the last few years, some very deeply, some just more casually, and there's a very distinct Republic culture. There's a kindness, a real focus on founders. There's a real kind of empathy, I feel like. As you scale, you know, as you went from just a handful of people now to like 50 people or whatever it is, how do you maintain the integrity of the team and the culture and what have been some of the bumps or things you've learned along the way? I think relationships in life, any type of relationship, most of it is luck. And there's a portion of intentionality behind it. I got to say, I've been so lucky with people in general in my life and how we got connected to begin with. But if there's one or two aspects of intentionality behind it, it would be one, because we do underpay people, that anyone who's willing to take a slightly below market job in terms of comp to come and work, they really do believe very much in the mission and what we do. Aside from that, I got to say every other typical social signals may it be where you went to school, what you did before, whether you had worked at a tech company before, none of that truly play out consistently. And at the end of the day, because our business model is so broad, we got to bring in people from all different backgrounds, including the type of team members that a true tech company like AngelList would never hire, would never interview. If you have an MBA, that's not for AngelList. And I think that in New York, in investment, that's too much of a bias. So nothing is check the box. It's really about staying open and bringing in different perspectives. Yes. When it comes to hiring, it's about how much that person sitting across the table believing what you do and whether she has a superpower that you think down the road a company can leverage, whether it's contents, whether it's engineering, whether uh, it's community building. So when it doesn't work out with an employee and you realize it's not the right cultural fit, they don't have the right skill set, and a company that is so kind of embracing and culture focused and that's so important to your DNA, how do you kind of extract that person and heal what has to happen? Or, I mean, even if they leave for, for good reasons, how do you guys kind of move through that? In my opinion, relationships end, like all things, there's a time period. And not all things last forever, including our own life. How to handle changes and shifts in relationship, in human dynamics, in a way that is respectable, dignified, and, you know, mutually acceptable is key. And the only way to do that is just full transparency. And I got to say that at least to go the intention on my end is whether someone shares the journey with me for three months or three years or 30 years, I hope that when the time comes so that we go our separate way, it may be me who goes my separate way, that I'll look back and say that that was an awesome time. It was a meaningful time. And I think with that approach, I don't think we have ever had a non-amicable separation. And in many cases, people have left and come back. That's incredible. Going back to the product a little bit, I mean, your product has evolved, as you said, you know, quite articulately, you've had to adapt to the market, you've had to build in different features that have been focused on what the founder really needs. Can you talk through some of that decision making when you are coming up with new features or deciding to go in a new direction or turning the business slightly? At the end of the day, if you're in the investment business, and we are, 
you got to make sure that you provide value and a very positive experience to founders so that you attract the best of them. And if you attract the best of them, then you get to select the best of the best and that provide the most value to your investment community. And that's how you grow both sides. When it comes to what we do, because it's so heavily regulated and you're asking founders to take on a thousand investors at the same time, together with regulatory disclosure and building out this web page. So a lot of attention has gone to making that experience cleaner and easier week after week. And then after they've successfully raised building out products that they can engage this community, the most avid fans and customers who now invest and become investors, how to leverage that network and extract value out to grow the company. So I would say much of it, probably 80% of the product strategy UX thinking has and will continue to go towards simplifying that process. To give you an example, it took us three and a half years, and now we have a product that we will push out that founders will no longer have to file financial disclosure or gap compliance. That was big figuring out. (laughs) That took a while. Expensive, but but yes. That's awesome. As the visionary of the company and someone who kind of sees the forest through the trees and really had this vision early on, how do you then, as you grow a team, kind of delegate that responsibility to say like, okay, here's our head of product and that person is going to make some of these decisions. It's oftentimes hard as the founder to kind of step away. So kind of curious your own journey of building the team that you trust. You know, building and growing a team uh, from six people to now 60 is such a personal journey and it requires constant assessment of your own happiness as well. If you keep the same mindset, then you end up being so distracted and yet so involved in everything that would make life not possible. The only way to make this process sensible is learning how to step back, how to trust and give people space to make mistakes. If no one is perfect, I'm certainly not. And I think there's a longer intention on my end that as a company grow, even the main founder or the CEO got to constantly question whether the work that he's doing or the role that he's in is best for the company or continue to be best. And so when it's very clear that someone is so much better at community building, at being the face of the company, then I should get out. I'm not an engineer. I'm not product oriented. I can give my opinion about what color or what logo What I think about, you know, our new logo, but I'll defer the judgment entirely. So based strictly on my own personal sanity that I've been uh, more and more backing out of things that I don't think I'm the best person at the company to be doing. This is a very complicated product on the back end, not for the consumer experience, but it's a complicated product. It takes a very advanced mind, I feel like, to really wrap your head around it in some ways. And in a way, that's led you to seek investors and partners that have been maybe outside of New York and San Francisco. And you just told me you just got back from Asia. You're yeah. constantly flying. And so how do you think about the broader landscape of what you're doing, how this has like global impact? You made a point that is so true, but very few people necessarily see it that way. In that our business model, even though we've grown, I think, 6x in the past 12 months, It's still something that 
VCs in the U.S. because of their own deal flow and because the business model currently is working, that not everyone is necessarily bought in on that, hey, this is indeed the new future for investment. And so I do that cash. That was a very diplomatic way of saying <laughs> that the VCs don't get it. All right. <laughs> many still don't, uh, but many do. Uh, you know, we're lucky to have firms like Passport Capital and, you know, AngelList itself in a way as a VC. So I have this observation about the ecosystem, and I wonder if you feel the same way, that it is still hyper-localized. You know, family offices and high net worth individuals around the world all most have an interest in participating in private companies, particularly those in the U.S. backed by well-known VC. And currently, most of them don't have a way to navigate this ecosystem. Given that 40% of companies on Republic actually have already been venture-backed, we do represent an asset class that is attractive to the institutional investment community outside of the U.S. Hence, even from two years ago, that there was an effort on our end to build relationship in Asia, in the Middle East, in Europe, because there's a demand, but not enough supply. And I do think that that demand is vast and so big that over time, if allocated or deployed appropriately, can give founders in the U.S. who currently do not have access because everyone is fishing out of the same little tiny pond here in Silicon Alley, in Silicon Valley. If you can redirect that capital to Chicago, to L.A., to Alabama, we can make a lot of amazing founders happy and build awesome companies. When you need advice, when you need to run things by other people to make, whether it's product decisions or strategic decisions, who do you go to and how do you think about kind of a larger network of support? Getting advice and mentorship and feedback is also a hyper, I think, personal and subjective process. We read a lot of advice and methodology in books, but I don't think that there's one that works for everyone. I'm so fortunate to have a vast network of friends and I go to you for advice all the time, but in my approach, if I have to boil it down to one sentence, is talk to whomever you think in your network that has the expertise and get a few different perspectives, but take an hour, clear your mind, walk in the park, and come up with your own solution on what you think makes you sleep best at night. It's always twenty twenty in hindsight, but never in foresight. <laughs> Part of the theme of the podcast is really around resilience, and I consider you one of the most resilient founders. I've seen you you with bags under your eyes, getting (laughs) off a flight, and you're running to the office because you have to be there. It's pretty incredible. So what keeps you fighting the fight every day? It's been three and a half years. There's been a lot of stuff coming at you, and you you always have this kind of incredible demeanor, and you're ready to go back out there and fight the fight. Coming for you, it means the world. The two elements, if I have to describe in your work, my resiliency, one of which is I feel so lucky to chance upon, and I say chance loosely, but I feel so lucky to come upon this work that doesn't feel like work, that if I have to spend the next 80 years building the business model at Republic, that sitting here today, I feel that it would be worth life itself. That doesn't mean that if it doesn't work, that I'll be so heartbroken. No, the process itself is insanely enjoyable as well. 
getting to talk to amazing mentors, investors, founders every day is a very enjoyable process. So putting that work doesn't actually feel like work. Certainly there are days when you sleep two hours and you just got to like grind through and, and handle whatever is coming next. And I got to say this one hack for me, being an immigrant from Vietnam and my parents definitely dropped everything they had to move the family to a whole new country. And I've never seen my dad actually complain about anything. And he has always been, now in his late 70s, up at 5 a.m. and always go to bed after midnight. And he's never lost his temper or be mad about anything. And so I'm just like, well, if he had such a vastly more difficult life and I have the fortune of doing what I'm doing now, the least I can do is to mimic the positivity. Awesome. I think on that note of gratitude and excitement about what's to come, Cam, we will thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, and what kind of stories you'd like to hear next. You can find me on Twitter at J.E. Fielding. 